You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to episode 77 of the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris, and Bob is out somewhere in COVID-19 land putting out an IT fire, so Bob won't be with us today. Today we are coming you remotely from Chris's home here on Long Island, working remotely at the moment from my basement office. So the Library Pros Podcast is a bi-monthly podcast, and please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find podcasts. And please check us out on Twitter at the Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash pros. Consider leaving a review or tell a friend or colleague about us because word of mouth is the best way to help our podcast listenership grow. So joining us today is Maria Dismondi. She's an author, founder, and CEO of Cardinal Rules Press, a successful children's publishing company. And we're going to speak with Maria about the challenges of digital marketing in the book world and suggestions that she has for all of us in library land. But first, let's chat with Maria and find out more about her. So I'm glad you could join us today. And I think your perspective is going to be unique from most guests that we have on the podcast. Tell us about the types of books that you have written personally. Absolutely. So I write children's picture books and I started over a decade ago. I was actually a classroom and I was looking at the library in 2006 because I don't think I was searching on Google or Amazon at that point. Um, I was looking at the library for books about children's self-esteem, picture books, because I learned as a teacher that the best way to teach important topics are through indirect lessons and I use children's literature to do so. I could not find a book that had human characters that talked about self-esteem. I found books with dancing dinosaurs and singing teddy bears. And so at that time, I decided to write a book and it became published in 2008. It's called Spaghetti and a Hot Dog Bun. And after that, I just continued to write realistic fiction for children. And I stuck with the theme of empowering topics like kindness, empathy, perseverance, problem-solving, and decision-making. Well, that's really unique because I have kids that are now a little bit older, and you, you would never find books like that. So it really is a nice, mm-hmm. unique take on it. And, and building yeah. self-esteem in kids is, is such a big thing nowadays, too. Yeah, and you know, Chris, something really big about our books, too, is we pride ourselves on diversity in our books and not just in the colors of the children's skin, but the diversity of the characters, the genders, the you know, socioeconomic status of the families. So we have a lot of diversity in our books. So the difference between when I first published my book and now is that we are seeing a lot more focus on diversity in characters, and there are a lot more realistic fiction books now, which is awesome. And that makes a lot of sense, too, because if you want kids to, be, to, to love to read the, the nonfiction as much as the fiction, why not engage them that way? Start it yeah, at a very young them, age. And let them see themselves within the pages of the book. Mm-hmm. Exactly, because that, I think, helps with reading comprehension as well, because if they can make that association, they'll be better engaged with the book. It won't be like when, when you or I were in school and they made us read a book that we could not stand. And I, I, I'm already going to say it, for people who love the book Wrinkle in Time, it's probably a wonderful book. But when you're in the seventh grade and all you want to do is play first base for the New York Yankees, you could care less about A Wrinkle in Time. So it was <laughs> torture. So th- I always think in terms of if I, if I had had books like that when I was younger, 
that would allow me to almost feel, had that empathy and sympathy for the character because, hey, they're just like me, then mm-hmm. maybe I would have liked reading better when I was in middle school. Good point. Yep. So your experiences with writing books led you to create a publishing company. Holy cow, that's amazing. It's called Cardinal Rule Press. And tell us what happened with that. How did that start? Where, where was the spark? I think after after 10 years of writing and publicity and having this limelight and the spotlight on myself, I thought, well, one, I missed teaching because I resigned from teaching when my writing really picked up and started bringing in revenue and income. So I missed teaching. And two, I was tired of of myself. (laughs) Quite frankly, I was tired. I wanted to be able to take myself out of the spotlight. And so I thought, what if I were to help other writers to do this and coach them and teach them about building an author brand and, you know, writing picture books. And so that's how the company was born. That's amazing. And and it just took a little bit of of just, hey, something from you that said this needs to be done and I want to do this. Yeah, absolutely. And it took a lot of mistakes. I I mean, I'm going to be real here. I made a lot of mistakes then and I still make mistakes now because like I said, I didn't go to school for business. I went to school for education. So there's a lot of learning curves along. And I have to say, you're really brave to do that because I would be petrified to start something like that. Thank you. (laughs) So you don't look like the big bad ogre publishing company that denies everybody's books either. Oh, well, I'm sure you get some stuff that's really not good, but I'm just saying (laughs) not to put you on the spot or anything. So let me let me ask you this. What is your biggest challenge as a publisher for children's books? Is it finding authors or do they find you or is it choosing, you know, which I mean, I'm thinking you're looking for authors that fit not just your company model, but also your philosophy as an educator and, you know, as an author yourself. Absolutely. You know, at the beginning, we didn't have a big name and we didn't have enough to say we have a big name now, but we had to really get a lot of visibility on our company. So at the beginning, we would get 50 submissions and 100 submissions. And the way it works, the process is you're supposed to read the company guidelines to see what types of books they publish, because we do not publish talking dinosaurs and dancing teddy bears. We only publish realistic fiction. So we now, we we have to thumb through and we have to go through that slush pile of the people who don't even follow the directions. So I would say to answer your question, I think the hardest part is choosing which authors fit our company because now doing this for five years, we are, we are getting a lot of submissions. And so there's a lot of good books. We had over 600 manuscripts that were submitted last, or the last period that we um, accepted uh, manuscripts. And we had to really narrow it down. And we had some beta readers come in because my um, acquisitions editor and I, we liked too many books. And we're like, we can't publish this many books. We need to narrow it down. So I think definitely choosing the author, not finding the author. Well, you know, as you're, you're, you're talking about this, I keep thinking of, uh, so we're talking about children's picture books. Are, they, are the, the manuscripts submitted just with text or text and the artwork? Or do you, does somebody submit the story and then you find an artist and then the artist does the work later? Yes, only manuscripts is what we accept. And then as a publisher, we hire the artist afterwards and the art comes later. Unless you are a professional writer and illustrator, no, we just take your writing. 
Yeah, we're taking about 600 to 1,000 words. Really? So I've never yeah. counted words in, in a picture book. So, you know, it's not exactly brown bear, brown bear. You know what I mean? But I think, Chris, the greatest advice I can give to someone is to find a publisher, do the legwork and to find a publisher that would be a good fit for you and not to just submit your book to everyone, but be selective on who you're submitting to and that will increase your chances of getting published. Wow, that's some really good insight. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. So we have a lot to talk about. So we're going to take a short break and when we get back, we're going to talk about digital marketing and tools and strategies for success. So we will be right back so now it's like hi it's chris from the library pros and i want to tell you about the book best technologies for public libraries policies programs and services i along with nick tanzi and james hutter both amazing technology librarians and previous guests on this podcast co-authored the endeavor if you're interested in bringing 3d printing augmented reality virtual reality or drone flying to your library, this book has what you need. It's a roadmap to successfully implementing this technology because we cover purchasing, developing effective policy, finding the right software, and have model programs and services already designed to make planning programs easier. You can find the book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you buy books or ebooks. I hope you'll check it out. Okay, we're back with Maria Desmondi from Cardinal Rule Press. So marketing has been around since newspapers were first written, and you know that was transitioned then to radio and television, and now online. So how important is it to have an online marketing strategy in today's world, especially when it comes to library land? Well, thinking about library land, I think the most important to, to really thing to consider is where are your readers spending their time. And so if I was a librarian, I was thinking about my readers and let's say, you know, parents of, because I'm talking about children's books today, parents of young children, where they spend their time? Okay, well, at night, they're probably coming through Facebook and Instagram after the kids go to bed. They're doing a little bit of mindless social media searching like some people do, and maybe they're spending time reading. So I do think a lot of, you can look up the statistics, a lot of people are online right now, and so I think the digital strategy is uber, super important, because that's where our people are. They're online, and if you wanna get in front of those eyeballs and you wanna bring them into your library, you're gonna reach them online. Well, it makes a lot of sense, too. Um, and it's funny, just in talking about that, when you want that decompression time and you're on Facebook or Twitter or, or Instagram or wherever you are, um, and you don't have to answer this question, but I, I made a rule for myself, never make a decision about purchasing anything, purchasing anything after 10 o'clock at night. Oh, that's an awesome decision. That is very, very, <laughs> Could you, because I need to incorporate that. You know, you, sometimes you get a box three days later and you forgot you even ordered it because you were so tired. And you're like, what was I thinking? <laughs> it's true. I have been a victim of that. <laughs> yeah, so I have a 10 o'clock rule. It's, this is what you have to do. But, you know, marketing really is so important, especially what we're dealing with now. Um, you know, being it, when we're... I mean, if you're listening to this and we're past the COVID-19 period, I think it still applies even after quarantine is over. And we were talking about this off mic about the different quarantine levels and things like that. Um, it's almost a real captive audience now. And I think that that captive audience is not going to go away. So I think marketing really does make 
big difference with regard to how you're going to push product out. It really does. And then to keep that strategy. So, so a lot of people right now are, you know, working day and night to develop a strategy because they want to reach everyone who, who home and lockdown, but why not keep strategy going when we get back to what is going to be our normal? It's going to be a new normal. We've all talked about that. It's going to look different. It's going to sound different. So bring what you've learned through this time period of being in lockdown, bring those digital strategies into your new normal. So for you, it is about getting the word out about publishing company and the products that your company is putting out there. Thinking about the avenues for that, we're talking about now Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all those kinds of tools, right? And there may even be some others that I'm not even thinking of. Yeah, yes. We are looking at Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. We're also looking at YouTube. We use a lot of our videos on YouTube. We reach people that way. LinkedIn is somewhere where we have um, made a lot of good connections with school, elementary school administrators, elementary school curriculum developers, and planners and writers there. So what we like to do, because there are so many channels and avenues you're calling them, we like to recycle our content. So the average individual who is spending a lot of time on LinkedIn, that same individual is probably not putting a ton of time into Facebook or Twitter. So people kind of choose their different platforms. So we try to recycle our content so that we're reaching people on different platforms and we're not spending a ton of time writing all different types of content, but we're sharing it across all those avenues. You know, I'm glad you brought up the idea of recycling content because sometimes people miss it the first time around, and with the way the um, the algorithms are on Facebook, you may not see a friend's post for months because of how crazy so those cool. algorithms. It's it's terrible. It, it's I, I would rather just see things in chronological order. And Twitter, which I like to read in chronological chron, I can't even speak today. Chronological order. Uh, they also do that where they switch it to top tweets first, and I don't care about top tweets, especially trying to follow what's going on nowadays. And every once in a while, it switches me back automatically. So the concept of recycling content, when you're talking about social media, do you subscribe to pushing the same message out on every platform with a tweak for each platform's nuance? Or do you pick, okay, you know what? This looks like a, an Instagram. This looks like a Facebook story. This looks like a Facebook regular post. This looks like a Twitter. You know what? I'm going to embed this YouTube link into Twitter, but I'm not going to do it on Facebook. And then LinkedIn, I think it's an unsung hero in all this because it really has transitioned from finding a job to professional development. And when you're talking about whether you're an educator or you're a librarian or you're an administrator in any of those environments, having your finger on the pulse of what's happening in publishing is really important. So I think LinkedIn is the unsung hero in all this. But tell me what your thought is with regard to either putting the same message out with a tweak to all the platforms that you know, within the same time frame of like a week or so, or whether you're, you're more selective? Yeah, so we do the former. We are taking our message and putting it across, and I don't want to say all the platforms because our audience is not on all the platforms. So, for example, we are not spending any time on TikTok. We are not spending any time on Snapchat. Um, we are not spending as much time on Twitter. Um, so our, our main sources are... Um, YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook, those would be our top three, and LinkedIn would be, you know, maybe a second place. So we are, we're taking the same content and we're putting it out just in different ways on those different platforms. And again, 
you know, I always tell people you have to think about where your audience is. So, for example, if you have, you know, you're a librarian and you are um, in the youth department with teens and tweens, you are probably not going to spend any time on Twitter. You're going to be focusing on reaching those readers out on probably TikTok and Snapchat. And you know what? There are librarians getting out there. There's a librarian here in Michigan and she's on TikTok. Right. And, you know, my library also has a TikTok and Instagram and, and all these other things I haven't even heard of before. And if I, mean, I don't if I don't have a whip in a chair, I'm not going down to the teen department. I'll tell you that. There you go. There you go. So your question, you're using the same content, but in different. Right. So it, it, it does make sense to tailor what you're doing to the types of groups that you're reaching to go to their types of social media. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Now, aside from social media platforms, tell us about some of the other forms of marketing that you've used that would translate to what libraries, and in terms of digital programming or videos that would complement the materials you're promoting, you know, what libraries do. Yes, I think if the librarians are listening to me now, I'm going to tell you, teach people how to use audiobooks. Because the biggest thing that I'm hearing from parents, because I'm also a mother, so I'm spending a lot of time talking with other families about homeschooling right now. And parents are not accessing materials at the library because they don't know how to. They don't know how to get Libby on their phone. They don't know how to use Hoopla. So if we can educate families on these different tools like audiobooks and these apps that are allowing them access to, let's see, audiobooks and ebooks. I think we're going to see more accessibility. We're going to see more usage. Um, so that would be the first thing. Um, the second one is we are utilizing Zoom to get our authors on virtual events. And so we are help. So we just did this on Friday. We had a book come out called Evie's Field Day, and it was released on May 1st. And we had our author do her book launch on Zoom. We had over 100 people sign up. We had about 68 people log in to the Zoom call. We had families, we had young children. And so we helped the author to take her book launch that was supposed to happen at the bookstore in California, and we did that virtually online. And this is something that we did because of COVID, but it's something we will continue to do because we were able to reach so many more people. An average book launch for an author brings in about 25 to 30 people, and typically it's the family and friends. But in this case, we have people all over the country tuning in because of accessibility. So you've heard me say it twice now, Chris, accessibility. How can you help your readers to access books at your library and on your apps? How can you educate them to access and use what you have? And I think you're right. Taking notes. Go ahead. I'm I think sorry. this is good. Taking notes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the the big word is accessibility. Accessibility is the key to what we do in libraries and what it is it, it, with regard to school too. Uh, accessibility, giving the exposure to whatever it is, is key. I remember my fourth grade teacher said to me when I had said, yeah, I learned, we learned about that. And she said, no, you were exposed to it, but it didn't sink in. You didn't learn it. You were only exposed to it. And that's my first quote unquote exposure to the, the turn, the difference and nuances between being exposed to the material and actually learning the material. But the idea that you expose them with the accessibility 
makes a huge difference. Just in terms like right now, uh, here in Suffolk County, we've had an explosion in people using Libby and Overdrive. And Yay! And in the same breath, Hoopla and Canopy and all of those other digital services that we've had for a while now, in some cases five years or more, that were just sitting there because people were coming in the building. So now that people are yeah. deprived of being able to come into the building, which is what libraries are, right? It's, it's, an, it's an actual visit experience. And taking that and making it a virtual experience now has really driven it home. And I think that the big thing that everybody keeps saying is, Oh, libraries was sent five years into the future with COVID-19. I'm not so sure that it's five years. It may even be a little bit longer than that because this is going to be the new normal as we keep talking about. It. And again, this, this transitions whether or not you're, you're listening to this during the COVID time. Uh, you know, libraries have become digital. You know, people say, well, our library is relevant anymore. Well, absolutely they are. With all the different things we're doing with technology, with giving more accessibility to these materials. Accessibility is huge in what we do. That's why there's Interlibrary Loan. That's why there's WorldCat. That's why there's all these different sources to try to find materials. And that's why, frankly, frankly we have archivists too. Um, but that accessibility component digitally really, I think, makes a, a big difference in, in what we do on our end and on your end as, you know, on the publishing side as well. So as a little aside question, how hard is it, and you don't have to answer this question if you don't want to, how hard is it to get your material to Libby and Overdrive? Because I, I would think that you have a digital component now to your publishing as well. Yes, it's, it's extremely easy. It's extremely easy. We are distributed by IPG out of Chicago, and they have a digital team. So we, it's a matter of a couple clicks. They take our files. They um, transfer and you know, edit our files so that they're compatible with the different formats. And then in their system, it's a click, 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 publish. We're good to go. It's extremely easy. That's great. And I know yeah. some of the publishers, uh, I think it was Random House or Macmillan. I think, I think it was Macmillan that had the, the big controversy with releasing uh, um, digital books to libraries. And they were going to, oh, we're only really going to release one book or whatever the, the crazy number was. But I, I honestly think, and you could tell me I'm wrong being on the publishing side now, don't you think it's detrimental to a publisher to not allow for that access through libraries? Because you're still making the money on the publishing by selling the rights to libraries, which is probably a different, different pricing structure than it would be if it was an individual buying the book. Yeah, I agree. And, um, you know, all of our books, we have our authors read their books on YouTube and we do not, um, we don't condone, you know, other people reading our books on YouTube because there's a whole level of monetization. People can make money off of reading your books. But we have all of our books read by the authors on YouTube for free. And people are shocked that I've allowed that. And I said, you know what? We are reaching children whose families will not take them to the library. We are reaching children whose families cannot afford a book. And they're getting our messages. And we are not losing sales. We are not losing sales from it. I think we're benefiting and I think we're making more sales because I think we're backed by the educational um, you know, com community who sees that we support children of all different um, levels. Yeah, I, I think that publishers are losing out when they don't agree to that. I agree with you. And also, wouldn't you also say that if there was a, a parent that saw a child who was in love with a book at the library that maybe they may be inclined to buy that book for that, for that child? Yes, 
Correct. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think in terms of like something as silly as Brown Bear, Brown Bear, which great book, love the book, um, is something that we bought for our kids when they were very little. And my my 18-year-old brought it to college with her. Now, she's not sitting and reading the book every day, but she brought it with her because it reminded her when she was little. That's so sweet. I love that. So, you know, there is that component too. And it's also good for the publisher because you've made a sale. Um, mm-hmm. But I think what's refreshing in speaking to you is that, yes, you're in it to make money, just like everybody is when they start a business. But that's not your, your I mean, it is one of your primary concerns because you have to pay the bills. But it's more about that accessibility. And I think that, you know, that's commendable because you're worried not just about pushing a product out there, but actually getting it to the people and making sure that people are enjoying the content. And the fact that you're having the authors read the book online, um, you know, speaks volumes. And I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's kind of different with children's books, especially children's pictures books, because it's, it's the experience, it's not the knowledge. I mean, you, the idea is to trick the knowledge into the, into the writing, but it's more about the experience. So having the author read it on YouTube with the intonation of voice and, and, the, and the way it's articulated, the way the author had intended it to be. Think about how cool that would be if Stephen King were to read his books with the proper so intonation cool. and things like that, right? I mean, I mean, am I off from, from that as estimation? No, no, that's true. That's true. You know, so I, I think that it's, it's a actually a very wise marketing plan to have all that stuff because if the kid falls in love with the book and they're watching on YouTube all the time, hey, guess what, parents? Here's a Christmas present. There's a Hanukkah present. Yeah. You know, there's yeah, that's, Easter. That's yeah, so th- again, there's like guerrilla marketing in that too, right? So true. So taking all this digital stuff that you produce as a publisher – you know, do you utilize other more traditional marketing tools like email lists, newsletters, and other ways to reach out to your audience that is that is different from the, not necessarily old school, like the digital, you know, the marketing with regard to um, the social media and YouTube and all that other stuff. But is there other, other things like email lists and newsletters that you use to reach out to your audience? We do. We do use email lists, newsletters. We also send out catalogs to libraries. Um, we also work with the trades, um, for example, like Kirkus Reviews and Publishers Weekly. We submit our books there to get reviewed. And if they are reviewed, um, you know, it's publications. Um, we submit, uh, as a publisher, I submit a lot of writing to Publishers Weekly. A lot of times they have, you know, um, surveys that they do and they're asking for information from um Publishers, so I submit things there because that's that's more of a traditional way. People are still reading Kirkus and and Publishers Weekly and School Library Journal, so we're working with all of those trade companies to get our book reviewed and to get some, um, you know, acknowledgement from those companies because we truly we also survey librarians. So we had a survey that was running asking librarians how are they selecting their books. A large percent of them said we're still reading catalogs. We are still reading reviews and blogs and um, recommendations others. So we're trying to uh, hold on to those more traditional marketing tactics that are still working. And word of mouth, too. I mean, because librarians talk to each other all the time. Hey, have you read this book? You're going to love this new book. It's out. It's this. It's that. It reminds me when I was a kid. It reminds me of this. You know, I think there, there's that end of it, too, that word of mouth that I think really um, 
still works to this day. It does. And that's why it's so important to be connected to librarians and educators on social media, because if they're talking about your book on social media, chances are other people are hearing about it. Right. So are email lists still a thing? Well, now I would say yes. We have an email list. Send it out a month and we have a very high open rate. The percentage of people reading the email, we are in like the mid 30s to high 30 percentages, and the average right now is 22%. So if you have an email, sending it out, and you look at your open rate and it's below 22%, you might consider changing the direction of your writing or might consider, you know, leaving the newsletter behind if, if people aren't actually opening and reading it. So the cool thing about digital newsletters is you can track that and you can analyze it and decide whether or not it's your time and energy. Versus paying that bulk rate mailing and then it goes out and you don't know what happens to it. Yeah. The digital tracking is the amazing. Bulk rate mailing there, I've learned there is a way to track you can off type of an incentive and then you can see how many people utilize that. And so maybe you send out uh, a postcard and it, it has like a discount code. I don't know if it would work with the library. Oh, it, maybe, um, you know, like a summer reading and there's a special code that kids can enter to get a free pencil or something like that. And then you can see how many people actually use that incentive, get the pencil to see whether or not your bulk mailing worked. Okay, so analytics. Yes. Analytics. So marketing also has a level of frustration uh, associated with it. And um, what gets you frustrated when it comes to getting the word out? Is it more it's more than just reaching readers, right? Yeah, you know, Chris, I mean, I still read paper books. I I read a real book. Technology is not my strong suit, and so I have to pay people on my team to help with certain aspects. And sometimes I have to step in and learn myself. And that can be frustrating when, you know, when you look at what you like to do during your work day, sometimes I don't want to handle, you know, a jot form or a lead page and look at coding. And sometimes I have to. So I think there's a level of frustration when I have to learn things that are outside of my comfort zone. Yeah. I think that's, that's something that's, you know, that's all of us really. You know, we need to get yeah. something done, but to get from point A to point B, you have to walk through that that forest of, I don't want to touch that, I'm afraid of that, or I really just don't want to deal with it kind of and thing. So I think the learning curve would definitely be the answer, the learning curve. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because we all get frustrated in what we do on a daily basis. I mean, and, and publishing is, is, is one of those things as well. So one thing that we think in one small way with this podcast is using podcasts to reach people who may not be a traditional customer, user, patron, uh, colleague. So can podcasts be an effective tool for marketing? I would say yes. And I think the way you can do that, I think the rule of thumb is to always provide valuable content. For example, I've, I'm sharing knowledge in this podcast right now. And I also mentioned our new book that came out, Evie's Field Day. But I mentioned that book one time. Now it's two times. And we've been talking for about 40 minutes, and I've been giving valuable content to your readers. So I think as long as you provide value, I think that you can definitely um, use it 
and, and reach the non-traditional customer, right? Because you can then plug in your product while providing content. And that's true. We've had people on that are promoting certain things. And I think that it's it's almost part and parcel with like people going on live with Kelly and whatever it's called now. Or, you know, hitting, you know, the talk show circuit if they're promoting a movie or anything like that. And I think, and I'm fortunate to be friends with my friend Carolyn Tack from the Merrick Library who hosts a podcast called Top Shelf at Merrick Library. And she interviews authors. And I think she, and now she's become part of the press junket for these authors who are not as well known as, you know, some of your DeMille's and, and things of that nature. Um, and she, and she's able to help them with their book tours by interviewing them. So I think there is something to be said with marketing with that. And the and the quid pro quo for that, as it were, would be that now the people who listen to that podcast know about a great new book that's out and they can go to the library and get that book. So I think podcasts, in a way, give you more than going on live with, it used to be Regis and Kathy Lee, that's how old I am, um, you know, going on the talk show circuit because it's, they're talking at you, but when you're listening to a podcast, you when you, at least my experience in listening to a podcast, I feel like I'm in the room with the people, and I feel like they're talking yeah. to me. So, absolutely, yes. Oh, it's like they're in your head. Yeah, exactly. So there's a different there's a different way of conveying and communicating, and I think, in my own opinion, I think podcasts are a great way for for books to to be uh, promoted. So this has been amazing. This has been a lot of fun, and you've actually confirmed a lot of things that I had thought that I've had differing opinions with colleagues about when it comes to marketing. But I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to speak with us, both about Cardinal Rule Press and digital marketing, because uh, marketing is such a large component of what libraries do. And it's putting the word out there that, you know, and or being the target of marketing that we, you know, that is so hard to understand sometimes. So we thank you for sharing some of your experiences and knowledge with us. So when we come back after a short break, we're going to be asking Maria our top 10 library questions. Don't tell anybody, but there's really 11 questions on the list. Uh, what we call the 032 list, which is the Dewey number for top 10 lists. And because Maria doesn't work in a library, if, you've been, if you're a regular listener to this podcast, there's been some slight modification to the, uh, the list of questions. But that's fine because we're still going to have a lot of fun with it. And as always, we always give credit where credit is due. Thanks to Melanie Cardone from the Longwood Public Library for giving us the idea of naming this list. So thank you, Melanie. And we will be right back. Okay, we are back with Maria Desmondi, author and founder and CEO of Cardinal Rule Press, who's going to be our next participant in our 032 list. So the questions in our list are inspired by Literary Hub, a library news site that has stories and interviews related to library land. You can see the work by visiting lithub.com. They do a great job at educating and informing library professionals on great topics from all over the world. Thank you, Literary Hub. 
So, you ready? Ready. Okay, here we go. First question, what did you want to be when you were a child? A teacher. How come I'm not surprised? <laughs> I also wanted to work at Taco Bell. Okay, so what was your first memory of a library, and who brought you to the library for the first time? The first memory is the smell. I, I loved the smell of books. And the first memory, I can't remember my parents taking me to the library, but I can remember going in school. My teacher's taking us down to the library and the smell of the books. You know, it's really funny because people say that a lot. And I never, I guess when I was little, I recognized that. But yeah, smell is a big thing when it comes to <laughs> libraries. And in a good way, not in a bad way. So when did you decide to be a writer slash publisher? And if it wasn't your first career path, what was it? And we kind of alluded to this before, but you can go ahead and answer that. Yeah, I decided to be a writer when I couldn't find the book I wanted to read. So I decided to write it. That's a great answer. So who's your favorite fictional librarian? So I'm going to answer this question a little bit differently. I'm going to tell you my favorite fictional bookstore owner was from You've Got Mail. Meg Ryan played the part of Kathleen Kelly. Okay, now I have an... A, a ear-to-ear grin right now because it was just on TV and I was showing it to my kids and the first thing they said was is that a laptop what is that thing (laughs) I love that movie and I loved Kathleen Kelly she just loved books and she loved the message and the 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 purpose of what's worth children so (laughs) okay so what would you be doing if you were not working in publishing uh, I didn't even see that question and I don't know how to answer it. What would I be doing? I would probably be riding my bike and hiking through the world. I love to be outside. So in your library, what is your favorite section of the library? Now we used to mean fiction, nonfiction, mystery, but with the advent of maker spaces and all the other fun stuff that happened in libraries now, this can mean anything. I still love the children's section. I love the, the noise in the children's section because you know you're in a library and there really shouldn't, but there is noise because you're in the children's section. So if you had infinite space and budget, what would you do to enhance your publishing company? We would buy more books, we would publish more books, and we would have a really big warehouse with beautiful bookshelves and a ladder that you could slide along. And when you needed a book, you could climb the ladder to get the book off the shelf. Bam. Love it. I absolutely love that. So what do you love about your public library? Where I live, there are three libraries within a five mile radius. And that's what I love. I can go to all of them and they all know me by name. Oh, that is great, isn't it? So, What's the weirdest item you've ever had submitted by an author? So let me preface this by saying this question usually is, what is the weirdest thing that has ever happened in your library? Because we all have crazy stories. But I thought, how about turning it around to say, what's the weirdest book concept that's ever been submitted to a publisher? Because I'm sure there were a billion different stories about these books that were just so not good or just off the, off the, the point or, you know. Yes. Well, we had a book that was a science fiction novel about an alien 
And we do not publish science fiction and we do not publish adult novels. So it was pretty strange to get that one. So apparently the person did not read our guidelines and they did not follow directions. <laughs> you sounded like a teacher there for a second. That's pretty funny. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Oh, it's really, really funny. So who is your favorite regular librarian? So we usually ask who's your favorite patient. Who's your favorite regular librarian? Her name is Miss Linda and she teaches story time and my children love Miss Linda and she brings out bubbles at the end and she plays the song Who Let the Dogs Out and my son will never forget his first experience in a library because of her. And so we love Miss Linda. Oh, that's great. So our final question. What are people without library cards missing out on? Everything. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Why don't you have a library card? What's wrong with you? <laughs> if nothing else, look at all the free stuff you get. I know. What is wrong with you? I know. It's so silly, isn't it? No judgment. No judgment. No, no. But it is silly. <laughs> So I want to thank you for being such a good sport and answering our silly list of questions. Um, and, of course, we had to modify it slightly, and I think it really was a lot of fun because of the, the different answers that we got. Um, and it's been great having you on the podcast. So do you have any plugs? Yeah, Chris, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate this. And for those listeners, head over to Cardinal Rule Press. We do have a newsletter we send out twice a month. And we love our newsletter because it's really short. It's only 250 words or less. And we write it for librarians and books on creative ways to get people into your building or into your programs and reading and participating. So definitely sign up for that if you're looking for creative marketing. Okay. Do you have, uh, you want to give us your Twitter and Instagram? and? Yeah, they can find us at cardinalrulepress.com or we're on Instagram. We're real active there under Cardinal Rule Press. Very cool. Very cool. So, Deborah Desmondi, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks so much. We have come to the end of another episode of The Library Pros, and we thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments on this or any episode, click on the Contact Us form on our website, thelibrarypros.com. Visit us on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarypros. Don't forget to tell a friend or colleague and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to our podcasting engineer, Dean Meyer. Remember, the opinions stated by the library pros and their guests are solely those of Chris and Bob and are not those of the Sachem Public Library, the MS Clark Memorial Library, or any other library. See you next time. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippin Productions and by the Library Pros themselves, Krista Christofaro and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sachin Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Carlton Welch.